Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Horseport Ireland podcast. I'm John Kyle and each fortnight we'll be bringing you interviews with equestrian experts and of course our Irish athletes. The Horseport Ireland podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts so you can subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you haven't already, check out our previous shows. Over the next two episodes, I'm going to be having a wide-ranging discussion with an equestrian renaissance man, breeder, inventor, author, and world-renowned coach, William Micklin. William, great to have this opportunity to catch up with you for the podcast. You're always so busy. What's lockdown been like for you? Well, my world hasn't changed very much because I still do a lot of writing and we've been doing uh, online seminars and stuff like that. And I still actually have more family to look after because Sam, my second son, came back from Canada where he was in university because that all closed up. So we've had the delight of having the three children or three young adults here for the period of time. And the horses at home still have to be looked after. So life hasn't changed that much. So like us all, keeping in touch with the world through video chat and like many, doing it with a full house. William, your many achievements, author, inventor, respected coach, one that's come to the fore in recent has been your success as a breeder of event horses. Can you tell us a little bit about where that's at for you at the moment? The most exciting thing is is that I have a horse, a mare, that I bred that's being ridden by Cordrick McCarthy, who's just had a second good run in an intermediate in Britain. And she is called High Haven. She's by Puissant out of a full sister of my stallion, Jackaroo. And Jackaroo, in terms of full brother of High Kingdom, written by Zara Phillips, who I know you know well, and Mandiba, written by Karen O'Connor in the United States. And I, reading from High Haven's full sister, so I have one yearling from last year by the thoroughbred Gamut, and one foal this year by the same horse Gamut. And next year, I hope that she will be in foal to, or I hope she will be in foal very soon, to one of the cruising clones. Camilla Spears has a five-year-old she thinks a lot of. It's by Jackaroo at the moment. So that's fingers crossed for that one as far as I'm concerned. I've always been a small breeder, but as you know, we've been incredibly lucky. We've an incredibly good family of horses. So it's uh, very exciting. Well, you'd be the envy of a lot of breeders being able to reel off a list of names like that. And tell us kind of how it's all come about. What's your take, your philosophy on breeding? It concerns me greatly that the traditional Irish horse has not had as much support in recent years as it should have got. I suppose the key part of that is that the thoroughbred hasn't got as much support in recent years as it should have done. But I do see a strong fight back. And statistically, there's absolutely no escaping the fact that the thoroughbred influence has been so important, despite what you hear. And I did an analysis over the last 15 years. I looked at all of the horses that were representing Germany because they've they, without doubt, have been the top eventing country in the world for the last 15 years since the arrival of short format. You know, people say since the arrival of short format, the thoroughbred wasn't required. So I just did the analysis from the start of short format in 2004. And they had 22 championship medalist horses. And the average percentage thoroughbred in all those horses was 73%. So once again, I would say that the three-quarter bred horse is king. So when you talk about what sort of horses I support, I firmly believe that a substantial proportion of thoroughbred blood is extremely helpful. And then I looked at the top 10 eventing money winners in the world ever, 
And it turns out that the average thoroughbred in those horses is 70%. Most people don't realize that Sam, Michael Young's famous horse, is in fact three-quarters thoroughbred by the thoroughbred sire, Stan the Man. And it goes on and it goes on. We shouldn't forget the thoroughbred option is what I say. And then combined with that, for a long time, before I ever came to Ireland, I was aware of the courage of the Irish horses and particularly interested in the derby classes at Hickstead and the derby classes which were very famous in Germany and to see how many Irish horses performed so well in the derby classes. And when I found High Dolly, my foundation there, the dam of Mandiba and High Kingdom and Jackaroo, found her by accident and found her without papers. Over a period of time, I found that he, she had in fact been registered as a foal and I could prove her breeding. And then it was just especially wonderful that I should be able to prove that she and therefore the whole family are related to Kilbaha, written by John Reddingham, the famous winner of the Hickstead Derby, and a, a number of other show jumping horses, especially Carling King and Di Lampard Abervale Dream. So these brave and special horses, it, it, uh, it means a lot. And probably the, one of the key elements of the breeding is that High Dolly was by chairlift. And chairlift got very few mares in his life because he wasn't approved. But chairlift still features in the breeding of the, the very successful Shannondale horses that Cahill Daniels is riding at the moment. The other side of the breeding of High Dolly is that she was out of a pre-fairy mare and pre-fairy was by precipitation, and precipitation is also the sire of Furioso. And Furioso is an absolute breeding god on the continent. And because of his name, people don't realize, in fact, he's a thoroughbred. To answer your question, I like to look at the very best, and I've always liked the best of the ponies, the best of the show horses. Horses are a particular type. They all have a job in this world. But if you're talking about high-level performance, I believe that you need sufficient quality and that the thoroughbred will even make a comeback in the show jumping world. That's brilliant that you were able to track down High Dolly's records and find that she was so well related herself. We've spoken so far a lot about stallions and bloodlines, William, but in eventing we're always told to maybe just look for the attitude. Which, in your opinion, is perhaps the most important? The breeding is, you know, you need both. There are undoubtedly well-bred horses, this is on the race course, who, who never do anything. But... If you spot a horse that's, that's got the athletic ability and has got the temperament, and of course, that's what I'm so so fortunate, is that this family of horses, they are so courageous, but at the same time, instead of being wild, they're also so gentle. This wonderful temperament. So High Kingdom that Guy Phillips rode in the Olympic Games in 2012 and then the World Equestrian Games in France, you know, he was bomb-proof from the very start. And similarly, William, I've spoken a lot about stallions, but you've brought it back a lot of times to High Dolly, your foundation mare. And that's important too, isn't it? And hence Horsesport Ireland's recent focus on quality mares for breeding. Absolutely. Obviously, my horses are based on High Dolly, a mare, and we, we mustn't forget the mares. Arguably, they contribute a greater proportion to their offspring than the sire does because it is the mare who has the first impact on the foal. And I do think that that makes a big difference, and I do think that the early years make a big difference, and I do think that's one of the reasons why Irish horses are so special is that simply is we have more space, and horses do get turned out. 
I remember Michael Osborne and his ex-head uh, of the Irish National Stud, in his last lecture, he said he only had one point to make. He stood up and he made, you know, he was a great speaker and he used to speak at length in very humorous and good ways. It wasn't very well at the stage. And he stood up in, in the hotel in Cork and he said, I have only one thing to say, turn your mares and young stock out. And then he sat down. But it, it just emphasizes the point that turning horses out is so important. And if you like, our major competitor in horse breeding was Holland. We are actually twice the size of Holland, but we have 17 times more grassland and space to turn horses out. And we are blessed with hills. And it makes a huge difference to the development of young horses if they're turned out and they're able to go up and down over varied terrain and go through water and climb over things. It's the traditional picture of the uh, upbringing of the Irish horse, and we think that it's, it it's no longer happens, but it does happen. I mean, your own father's young horses are turned out together in groups, and they're able to roam and go up hill and dale and gallop up and down the hills. It makes a huge difference to their development. Now, if the young horses spend all of their early years just on the flat, often in very controlled and small spaces, you know, they're just not going to develop in the same way, and in particular, they're not going to develop mentally. Well, that's an interesting balance there of nature and nurture and so similar to what Hugh Suffren was telling us in an earlier episode about the production of young horses in particular for eventing as well. A campaign you've become particularly involved with over recent years in the breeding world is the campaign for the traditional Irish horse. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I think it's very important to keep the best of all types it was obvious that we were going down a road whereby, unless something was done, the traditional Irish horse, being a combination of the thoroughbred, the Irish draft, and all the Connemara, was being lost. That all we had left, if you like, were continental warm bloods, either with a little traditional or none at all. And particularly because show jumping rules the roosters of grass breeding, people had turned away from the traditional Irish horse. Of course, one of the reasons for that is that many of us, the famous show jumping Irish horses, their breeding was unknown. It was in 2003, I know you were there when they had the uh, European Horse Trials Championships at Punchestown, and I did a celebration of the Irish horse. We had over 120 horses. We had 300 dancers. We had T-shirt, we had absolutely everything. It was a wonderful display. But one thing I wanted to do alongside it was to produce a little pamphlet with the breeding of all the great Irish horses. And you know, it proved impossible. And it's that loss of breeding information is part of the reason why people began to switch away from the traditional Irish horse. And it's one of the main reasons why Horse Sport Ireland is doing such a terrific job now to encourage people and keep encouraging people to make sure that their horses have proper papers. And undoubtedly in the past, we lagged behind. And of course, so many people who bought Irish horses and sent them to so many continental buyers buying Irish horses, the first thing they would do would be to throw away the passports because they didn't want other people to come and source horses from the same place. Um, but that has, that has all changed. So... It's very important to recognise the, the, the role that Irish horses had played in show jumping. David Broom would say that he didn't have a good Irish horse apart from 
a, a traditional Irish horse. He also had, of course, a pure thoroughbred in Philco. But there are so many people who would support traditionally bred show jumpers. But it's a numbers game. If there aren't enough traditional Irish horses being bred, then there's going to be very few reach the highest level, the elite level. And if they're going to be very few reaching the elite level, then everybody begins to say, oh, well, they aren't any good. So I say that the thoroughbred horse is the supreme athlete and add a little bit of the, the Irish draft, add a little bit of the Connemara, add a little bit of what you want, especially pony. I think it's a, it's a wonderful mix, absolutely wonderful mix. And when you do the DNA on these horses, you discover that, in fact, many of our successful horses, which people didn't know had any uh, pony in them, actually have some pony in them. You are probably more than well aware of, of Portisize just a gif with Camilla Spears. But Camilla went into the Pony Club and the Junior European with Portisize just a gif, and then she went into Young Riders, and then she went to the Senior Team, and she went to the Olympic Games. And I have a list of about 50 Connemara thoroughbred crosses who have competed at the highest level. And I, I think the Connemara is the most underutilized resource that we have in Ireland. But the good news about the Connemara is that it's not going to become extinct, like the Dartmoor Pony and the Exmoor Pony and the other group of ponies that is happening in Britain. That's fascinating stuff, William, and great to hear you championing not just the Irish Draft Thoroughbred Cross, but also the Connemara Pony option in the traditional Irish breeding. I think Mandiba gives us a nice segue now between William Micklem, the breeder, and William Micklem, the coach, because Mandiba was just probably the latest chapter in a long story you have with Karen O'Connor, the US Olympian. It's been a very special relationship with Karen O'Connor. I met her actually, first of all, when I, on the day I arrived in North America in Pepperell, Massachusetts, and I walked into the indoor school, and there was this blonde girl, I think she was 14 at the time, riding what was obviously a Connemara pony with the uh, very Irish name of Erin Shamrock. So that was Karen O'Connor. And shortly afterwards, I started teaching her. So I took her and Erin Shamrock through the pony club. She did her pony club A test, but she also went up the grade in horse trials, and I took her to her first advanced three-day event at Radnor, and that was on there in Shamrock, and that was before I left to come to Ireland. And we kept in contact, and thereafter, as she progressed up the ladder and wanted to find more horses, then I helped her find horses in Ireland. So the one that gave me greatest pleasure initially was Biko, because he was such an outstanding horse, and it was just wonderful to see Karen ride him. And he was the sort of horse that could not have been ridden by most people because he was too sensitive. And he went on, as you probably know, to be made horse of the millennium in America and multi-medalist and a household name with his big white face. I actually named him after Stephen Beekel, the civil rights activist in South Africa. And so it didn't take much effort when Mandiba came along to name Mandiba Mandiba, which is the pet name for Nelson Mandela. So I thought that there would be a nice connection there. And from the start, I knew that Mandiba was just so special. I have a big field where I turn the horses out. They live as youngsters. It has a big hill on it. And still to this day, no horse came down that hill with more grace and more balance than Mandiba. And it was one of the really, really special times of my life when I went to the World Equestrian Games in Kentucky. 
and she was in the American team on Mandiva. And to see particularly Karen riding at the top of her form round that course in Kentucky on a horse which I'd bred and to gallop round with such style and class. And now she's one of my favourite co-commentators for broadcast in the United States. But I understand exactly what you mean, that idea of having a horse that you've bred out doing so well at such a major championships must be an amazing, amazing feeling. So I knew that you grew up with your brothers and sister in Cornwall in the southwest of England. We've just heard that you were out in the United States coaching. How did you end up with us here in Ireland? It was in the days of Board McGopal, the Irish horse board, and they had a coach working for them, John Hall. I was employed as a second coach to work with John. Shortly after that, literally only weeks, John Hall announced his engagement and got married to Iris Kellett, our legendary show jumping trainer. And he, he left the board, and so I was there as the coach for Board McGuffle and the national coach. And that's when I took on the junior and young rider event teams. But in, in, in truth, if you're talking about our background, we had a general background, just the same as so many people in Ireland had in the past, in the sense of doing, as a basic piece of work, we did horse trials, we did show jumping, we hunted, we point-pointed. We rode horses for many hours, and we rode many different types of horses. Now, I think the all-round education is very important, not only for competition riders, but also for competition coaches. And I think it's one of our failings, both in terms of reaching a higher level and in safety, that the tendency has been to use specialist coaches who don't necessarily understand the other phases of eventing as fully as they should which I think is one of the reasons why Chris Bartle has been such a success in, in Britain. And he talks about two different types of dressage training. And he said, we all know the type of dressage training that won't suit horse trials, that won't suit eventing. And it's the type of training that is uh, seeks submission rather than acceptance. And I think that it's so important that we train our horses to have a fifth leg and to look after our riders and that we train one discipline uh, with a view of the other two disciplines, something which Michael Young and, and William Fox Pitt do so superbly. So anything they do, even in their canter work, suits what they're going to do in the dressage arena. And everything they do in the dressage arena suits what they're going to do when they're jumping. And I think it's very dangerous to have different specialist coaches or training systems that, 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 that don't hang together. So for you, it's quite a holistic approach. The dressage and the show jumping trainer can't be purists. They must understand the total effect required for eventing. You know, looking at the best, and I'm a great believer in looking at the best, if we're talking about elite riding, and there's no doubt that all of the best riders, you know, they have a system which, for the three phases, which is complementary, and people are led astray by not doing that. But it's about opening minds, and it's about, looking for better ways all the time. And I, I think in a few years' time, people will see a no-brainer that, well, of course, they should have done that. And uh, I know that Horse Sport Ireland has gotten uh, an elite training program for all of the disciplines. I think that Sally Corsgadden of the eventing has done a terrific job at bringing people together. There's absolutely no doubt about that. She uses people who, who work together and understand the requirements, the different requirements of the three main phases. And so that I think that all works together. 
And coaching, performance coaching, is something we've been at for quite a long time, William. So what's your take on where we are at the moment, given that you said we've still got, in your opinion, lessons to learn? Well, I would seek change. Other coaches should be more involved. Certainly all the coaches that have been involved in training of these riders up to their if you like, emergence into the national squad should be included. It's, to me, it's a responsibility that they have. It's only polite. So if I was, when I was training the RSQ and the rider teams, I made it absolutely a priority to find out who the riders have been working with and then to communicate with those coaches and bring them into the fold if we possibly could and bring them into the training sessions, which is why Mary Darcy, in fact, got some exposure and then became for a short while the trainer of the Irish event team before she went to the USA. And then you get much better value for money Team Ireland is a no-brainer. It's so important. We have so many people in the various areas from Ireland that are absolutely at the top of their trade. Obviously, we have three teams qualified for the Olympics in the three main disciplines, so we obviously have some very good riders. But we have so many successful Irish people in areas other than pure riding. Alan Wade is recognized now as the leading international course designer for show jumping in the world. And you, the question commentator, you are doing a better job. You are promoting not only the horse world, but you're promoting the Irish horse world, and you're helping the sport itself. We also have wonderful administrators, wonderful journalists, uh, and wonderful equestrian companies. Horseware Ireland, as you know, make my Mecklen Bridle. They were brave enough to uh, take on the Mecklen Bridle. And we have feed companies, Devonish Nutrition, who sponsor our show jumping team have recently secured a, a deal, I think, from the European Investment Bank for $118 million with the environment and green issues being a major part of this investment. And, and Ireland is green, and it's a huge part of our unique selling point and a unique uh, a selling point of, and, and part of us developing as, a, as an equestrian industry. And I would like to see better connections within the sport because we are all, in fact, interconnected. And one of the things which I've been working on recently is to try and show um, that breeders will benefit from a more successful sport. They actually depend, horse breeders actually depend on the success of the sport. But because everything's become so high-powered, we find that top breeders are actually almost too busy to get involved as they should in the sport. But, but all breeders, we need to play an active role in the sport and we need to volunteer and, and support the competition world. And the same goes for horse dealers and the same goes for coaches. And we all have a, a part to play in making the, the sport as a whole more successful. That's really interesting that you feel that as an industry, we should act holistically as well, just like we were talking about with the coaches for the three different disciplines in eventing coming together. It's really important that all of us involved in the industry come together and point in the same direction, this whole Team Ireland ethos to improve our sport and to improve our performances. And in terms of coaching, William, who has been your inspiration? Who are the coaches you worked with during your career that inspired you to become the coach you are today? My father went through the horrors of the Second World War and at the age of 21 uh, became a disabled army pensioner in France just after Dunkirk, which uh, when you say it like that, you know, at the age of 21, becoming a, a disabled army pensioner is a bit horrific. But 
you were never really aware of that because he never complained. And he, I think, put his life back together again, largely due to the influence of the horses and the people that he met in the horse world. And so he got huge pleasure. This was in Cornwall, which used to be a huge horse breeding county. And he got huge pleasure from the pony club, from the pony club people, from helping young people. And of course, in contrast to the horrors of war, smiling faces of young people was therapy for him. And of course, that influenced all of us. And so he would have described himself as a horse dealer. But in fact, what he really was was a person who loved people and loved socializing. And horses were his frame to do that, his drawing pad to do that. My father should have been a vet, but he was passionate about all aspects of horses. And we had every break in a riding session. You did something about stable management, whether it was why a horse needed to drink, why it wasn't suited to certain horse feeds, what were the advantages of wheat straw, what shape should the horse put be. So he did lots of little tasters, little tiny little short bits of information, which when repeated, you know, is the easiest way to learn. So he had huge satisfaction from all the many people that passed through his hands. So that was our beginning. And I think when I went to America from a, an elite training point of view, I was very lucky to hit upon a time when Jack Legoff and Bert Denemethy were both training. And in relation to my point about coaches, they had a huge influence on the coaches and all coaches were invited to those sessions. Uh, Bert Denemethy was in Gladstone and Jack Legoff was in Hamilton, Massachusetts. And, you know, I went along as a very junior coach and was welcomed with open arms. And I think that sort of attitude is, is so important. And the other thing that I was immediately conscious of is that Jack Legoff and Bert and Emothy had obviously talked about how they trained and how they worked their horses. Both had a, a wide basis of knowledge and training in dressage as well as jumping. And yet they set out in a very conscious way, to use the same language. So the two of them would complement each other. And you almost say, well, this is unbelievable. That can't be the case. But it was the case. They would use the same key phrases, the same words. And it's something I use in my training. I talk about constants, the things that are constantly required, and the variables, the things which are only uh, are required in different quantities at different times. And the variables come from Jack Legoff and Bert and Emerson talking about getting the right direction, the right speed, the right impulsion, the right balance, the right timing. There were those five variables, and I use them to this day. So that if you're going, I was delighted to see uh, Spencer Wilson write an article, the British uh, dressage rider from the last World Championships, and uh, he talks when he does the Grand Prix test, all he concentrates on is getting the right direction and the right speed. And that's exactly what a show jumper does against the clock. They've done their training, they've done their work, they then go into the ring and they keep the right direction and at the right speed to suit the distances and to, to try and be as fast as they possibly can. And it's true to say, even going around badminton, that there's a lot of pressures on you and your brain probably doesn't work too well very often. Start off getting the right direction and the right speed. Of course, the horse needs to be in gear before that, but that will see you through most situations. But so... That the simplicity of those two top coaches, Jack Legoff and Bert Denemothy, who were so successful and would still be successful today, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, 
influenced me greatly. And that's why I, I have a book, as you probably know, the complete horse riding manual, which Dorling Kindersley produced. But I'm in the process of doing another book, which um, I can use as downtime to uh, put some time into. And that's called Simplicity, because I strongly feel that bringing all the things together that I've been talking about, and particularly the lack of emphasis for pleasure riding and the uh, contradictions that happen between the two phases is the fundamental reason is because we make things too complicated. We can and should have to make things more simple. And I have an extensive library of horse books. I have over 300 horse books, and over 150 of those are dressage books. And the contradictions are just massive, and it's just madness. Now, unfortunately, you know, the horse will do anything you want using a set of cues, as long as you uh, keep repeating those cues often enough. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's the easiest way or the right way or the way that will lead to a high level. So simplicity is my mantra, and that's going to be the title. It relates to all areas of horsemanship. And so it's just like my bridle, it, simplicity is the, is the key thing. And it's, so I'm thrilled with the success of the bridle because it's made things more simple and it's made horses happier. And happiness is a, uh, or being sunny is a theme which runs through everything I do. And I mentioned about the different uh, sections of the horse community in Ireland working together. It's a key thing to show respect for each other and uh, to be sunny and to be positive. And I have, I have what I, in terms of simplicity, I have what I call my three Gs, uh, which makes, might sound like a throwaway thing, but it is so powerful. And I keep talking to riders and, and I keep talking to myself about the importance to have the three Gs. And the three Gs are gratitude, generosity, and giggle. My local vet, Larry Dunn, who does more embryo transplants and knows more about breeding than nearly everybody in Ireland, he talks about you mustn't lose the giggle. You know, he's involved in high-powered, thoroughbred, high-powered performance horses and people who are gaining money and losing money, but he said, don't lose the giggle. It may sound as though this has got nothing to do with the horse world, but it has everything to do with the horse world because it's about people's attitudes. And it's the attitude which is, has the far higher percentage of worth in performance, doesn't matter what it is. And so the three Gs, gratitude, generosity, and giggle, are something that that I'm passionate about. And that's great to hear. There's no point in doing something unless it's fun. And what names to conjure with there? Bert and Nemethy and Jack Legoff out in the United States. But, I mean, knowing the equestrian background of your entire family, William, I think, you know, going back to your father, that's a really interesting start and one that clearly gave you all an amazing grounding. And I think that's pretty much where we'll have to call it a day for part one. But William, you use language so well, and I think poetry and stories an awful lot, and we've heard some of that. Your coaching philosophy, do you have something that kind of sums it up for us? We want to support each other and we want to be positive. So often they're the hurlers on the ditch that stop people progressing in their career. You know, there's an Eddie Macken or there's a Rainer Klimka or whatever, and there's always a better rider. You know, people can say, you know, you're not good enough for your horse. And if they give it to so-and-so, the horse will go better. Well, that's true. But that one person can't ride all the horses in the world. And I think it's important to take people, assess people at the level that they are. And every time they achieve a personal best, that's something that's very special. And you need to praise it, not knock it. I use words, phrases, poems, stories the whole time. So there's a little piece written by 
Banjo Patterson, who wrote the words for Waltzing Matilda, and he called it The Riders in the Stand. There are some that ride the Robbo style and bump at every stride, while others sit a long way back to get along the ride. There are some that ride as sailors do, with legs and arms and teeth, and some ride on the horse's neck, and some ride underneath. But all the finest horsemen out, the men to beat the band, you'll find amongst the crowd that ride their races in the stand. They'll say, he had the race in hand, but lost it in the straight. They'll show how Godfrey came too soon, and Barden came too late. They'll say Chevalier lost his nerve and Regan lost his head. They'll tell how one was livened up and something else was dead. In fact, the race was never run on sea or sky or land, but what should get it better done by the riders in the stand. The race was never run on sea or sky or land, but what should get it better done by the riders in the stand. So I say to all my students and all the people that I meet, you are the ones who are out there. You're not on the couch. You're not on the stand. You're the one that's doing it. And go out and create a new personal best. And at the end of the day, the winner of the world championships or the winner of a, or, or the creator of a, a new world record is simply somebody doing a personal, a new personal best. Well, William, it's been a fantastic canter through your breeding and coaching. But we've got so much more to talk about, and we will do in part two, and we'll talk about more universal access to the sport and the industry, your bridle and some other inventions that might be on the horizons. And we'll be discussing recent Irish eventing successes and the sustainability of that success going forward. So, William, until the next time, thank you very much. Don't forget, as ever, a huge amount of advice and information on the HSI website at horsesportireland.ie. Remember, the sport and breeding departments at Horsesport Ireland, whilst working remotely, are still open and able to help with any renewals or registrations required. And there continues to be news and updates on the current COVID-19 guidance and details of the financial support available. So thanks for joining me, John Kyle, and I look forward to talking to you again on the next Horse Sport Ireland podcast.